You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Hey, good morning. So good to be with you. Go ahead and take your seats. Please open in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study called Upside Down in 1 Thessalonians this week. We've made our way to chapter 4, so please open your Bibles there. But now I'm going to hand the microphone over to Pastor Mike. He's going to be teaching us from the Word this morning. So, Thank you very much. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I just have to get my pastor teaching the Bible glasses on. Actually, they're my, I'm going to read my Bible glasses because I was getting to the point where I couldn't actually read my Bible anymore with these glasses, which are faraway glasses, and these are close glasses. But I can't see any of you now, so if you do sleep during service, this is the service to do it. I won't even know. And if you don't like what I'm saying, I won't know either. So it's good for me too, I guess. But uh, So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's just read our passage together. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll start verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the, through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards us disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you for this passage, for your word that you've brought to us. Lord, we just thank you that Paul wrote these words down for us, that we have so much to learn from them. And Lord, we just dedicate this time to you for your spirit to speak to our hearts, to speak those things that you have to teach us this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name. So recently, oh, actually last week, we uh, many of us here at the church, we participated in a in what they call the Sunrise Stampede. It's an annual fundraiser for special needs education for the St. Vrain Valley School District. And this was the third year that I'd been there, uh, well, at least since I've been here at Longmont. This is the third year we, in a row that we've done it. We've set up our White Fields Community Church um, popcorn in our, in our booth. And we bring our popcorn machine and we, we hand out free popcorn, you know, with full of empty calories and saturated fat to all those fitness junkies as they cross the finish line. You know, but of course, we, we also passed out uh, a lot of church information cards, and, uh, and we spoke with people about the church, and just kind of, you know, loving our community and sharing the love of Christ. And, and during the race, there were a lot of volunteers that had come out to volunteer at the course, and they, you know, they would pass out water, and they'd encourage you as, as you were running, you're doing great, you're doing great, you know, keep, 
keep at it, keep at it. You're almost there and things like that, some encouraging words. And, and I managed to finish the race. I did, I did better than I had hoped for. But a few months ago, I would have had to tell you that I didn't think this was possible. When, uh, when Pastor Nick and I came back from the Ukraine uh, middle of March, I, I managed to smuggle some sickness in over the border in my body and uh, brought it here with me to Longmont. And, and I hear I'm probably ground zero for a lot of you guys that got to be sick. I apologize profusely for that. But uh, so I struggled with this for about seven weeks. For seven weeks, it, you know, it really affected me um, really affected my body, and I, I don't know if many of you remember my gravelly Bob Seeger voice as I was up there trying to sing and attempting to sing, and my lungs were really affected by this sickness, but then when I, when I started to get feel better, and I, I started to try and train and, and run again, and I found out quickly that my body was not going to cooperate with me, and uh, Nick and I, we usually run, there's a, like a three and a half mile, four and a half mile course out there by the office along the, along the river. And I started out running about half a mile. I was done. I was completely finished. You know, I was toast. My lungs didn't work. My legs didn't work. Nothing worked. My head, I was, I was toast. And I kept at it, though. Nick was very patient and waiting for me many times when I was in cardiac arrest, having physical meltdowns, you know, and being here to raise me from the dead a few times. But, you know, I surely, I, I kept at it, you know, step by step and, and, and training and finally I was able to run in the sunrise stampede and I learned a few things from this experience first if you stop doing a particular activity and then you resume it again later there is there's no guarantee you'll pick up where you left off in my case it felt like I'd never run a day in my life secondly it was important for me to keep moving forward one step at a time not giving up even though it was quite demoralizing at times that my body would not respond to the way that it used to and thirdly it was good to have someone holding me accountable you know running with me waiting for me when I needed to catch my breath it just kind of kept me moving forward you know I moved here to Longmont with my family a couple of years ago Actually, just July 1st was our two-year anniversary here. And within a month of arriving here in Longmont, I was climbing up my first 14er with some guys here from the church. as kind of a welcome gift, I guess, to the state. So things were doing well. You know, things were going great until we kind of left treeline about 12,000 feet. And then things kind of slowed down. No oxygen, no energy. Brain telling legs to move, legs not moving. And it was becoming really, really hard. And later on, I found out from some of the guys that they seriously had doubt that I wouldn't even make it to the top. But I determined, you know, and there's, of course, nothing like a little peer pressure among men to keep you moving. So I determined in my mind that I was not going down this mountain. I was not going to give up that day. And I was going to get to the top. And so I developed a system of just, you know, moving a certain amount of distance, whether it was 20 feet, 10 feet, 50 feet, and then sitting down for 60 seconds. And I looked at my watch, 60 seconds, I'd get up and I'd try and move as far as I could, sit down for 60 seconds, you know, and I did that until I finally got to the top. And of course, the guys were cheering me on, encouraging me as I did that. And I tell you these stories because this is, this is Paul's encouragement here to the, to the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica to keep growing, to keep moving, keep walking with God, walking in a manner worthy of the God. And here as we continue in our journey with Paul's letters to the Thessalonians in our series that we have entitled Upside Down, this church here in Thessalonica has been born out of that turmoil, turmoil that we read about in Acts chapter 17 where Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica just after a few short weeks that he had with these young believers and Timothy now has come back with a report 
and a good report, but they have questions. It's difficult. Their newfound faith is under attack from the outside and from the inside. Some might feel like giving up, but Paul is like those folks at that race, at the stampede, cheering the runners on or the guys that I went up the mountain with, encouraging me to keep going. In life, there's no such thing as stopping or just maintaining. You know, maintenance inevitably becomes a synonym for retreat, just trying to maintain in life. The flow of life, and I know you know this, is relentless. And if we're not working at life daily, we find ourselves quickly downstream, and our spiritual lives are no different. Paul here has praised the Christians in Thessalonica for their work of faith. We see this in chapter 1. Work of faith for their labor of love and their patience of hope in Jesus. He now urges them not to slow down, but to abound more and more in those things that have brought them this far. Paul is urging them on, keep going, keep going, you're doing well. We see that chapter four here is a turning point in the letter as Paul turns his attention to practical ways that the Thessalonians could continue to please God, continue that growth to know God's will and to avoid some of the pitfalls that could hinder their sanctification or their progress in the faith. And if you were with us last week, Paul ended chapter 3 with a wonderful prayer there. If, if you would just want to look in, in verse 11 of chapter 3, Now may our God and our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for, for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. And Paul here is essentially in chapter 4. He's going to unpack that prayer he prayed there at the end of chapter 3. He prayed that they would abound in love. That they would be established blameless in holiness. Now Paul gives instructions on how that can happen. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to cover three main points. The first is purity of motive in verses 1 and 2. The second is purity of heart in verses 3 through 8. And the third being purity of character in, in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. And so as we get there in verse 1, we look at purity of motive. Verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul begins there in verse 1 with the word, finally. Basically, he's telling him, guys, this is where the rubber hits the road. What I've been telling you, this is where we apply it. Here are some of the questions you have, and here are how they are practically worked out. And someone said this letter is kind of one half of a conversation. You know, we're not always given the questions of the Thessalonians, but, we, but only Paul's answers. And Paul refers back to things he, he taught them while he was there that, during that short time. Like, you know, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, you know, we, we receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Or in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Or down there in verse 6, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, or in verse 11, he says, with your hands as we instructed you to work. And to work with your hands as we instruct you. Referring back to those things that he has spoken to them while he was with them. Continue in the instruction you receive, Paul says, from us by the authority of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, many times in the struggles of life, you know, in the difficulties, we're looking for that magic way out. You know, maybe... 
We're looking for that ski lift to the top of the mountain peak like I was wishing for a ski lift on that one day. You know, is there a shortcut to get to where I need to go? One of my guitar students asked me one day, just real honestly, he says, is there an easier way to learn guitar? And uh, unfortunately, I had to tell him no. And no, you got to work at it day by day. you got to maintain your calluses on your fingers. If I don't play guitar for a week, my hands hurt at the end of the weekend. If I try and play up here on stage, I have to keep my fingers hard. I have to keep working at it. At those things, the, the foundational things, we have to keep working at them. And Paul is saying, you're doing great. Continue abounding more and more in those things that I've shared with you, that I taught. Those things we were instructed you in are the foundations for walking in the manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. But I thought, you know, just for, for our time, what, what kind of questions do you think that the Thessalonians were asking when, they, when Timothy brought back that report, you know? And as I read through chapter 4, you know, I thought, well, maybe they asked, what, what pleases God? What pleases God? What is, what's God's will for my life? Maybe that was a question. Or why do I need to abstain from sexual immorality? Or what does sex have to do with my sanctification? How does what I do in private affect others? Is God really serious about all of this fornication stuff and can my life really affect the world for the gospel? And, you know, why do we need to work, you know? That was a question they might have had, you know? And I'm sure many of these questions that the Thessalonians, Paul, uh, that, that they were asking, that Paul is going to answer them in this chapter. But he starts with the foundation of it all, and that is purity of motive. There in verse 1, he says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God you and I need to know how we ought to walk with God. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're diving to God's word week after week, learning to walk with God, moving forward step by step in our faith. And you know, as Sean mentioned last week in his study, living an intentional Christian life. But what is our motive? Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to live an intentional Christian life? Well, for me, it's to please my God. To please our God, our Father in heaven who loved us so much that he gave us his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our motive is out of love for a God who loved us first and gave himself for us. Not the law, but grace. Not a spirit of fear or blind faith, but love, power, and a sound mind. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you have your Bibles, you like underlining, I underline my Bible, and so we are, John says. I love that part. God has called us into relationship with him. That relationship shapes our lives, shapes our decisions, and it makes us choose one thing over another and to put away things that are harmful, maybe to die to our own desires, Many times for a greater purpose. But greatest of all is to be in fellowship with our Savior, Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that is what I want to do. I want to get rid of anything in my life that hinders that relationship and to do things that please my Father in heaven because I love him. It's not easy. It's not easy, but it's something I want to abound in more and more. I hope that's a prayer for us this morning as well. But I want you to keep that in mind as we transition to our next point. Purity of heart there in verse 3. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Three important phrases. We'll look at them one by one. The first one, this is the will 
of God. Probably the most asked question in, in church, other than where are we going to go for lunch after the sermon, is what is the will of God in my life? 2 Peter 3.9 says, It is God's will that none should perish, but that all should repent. So if you are here today or you're listening online and you don't know God, it's God's will that you repent today and believe in him today. He does not desire that you perish in your sins, but you will if you don't repent and believe in him today. Do you know that it's God's will that you give thanks in all circumstances? 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And what about this one? 1 Peter 2.15, but this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Doing good is the will of God. God's will is that you get saved, you give thanks, you do good. Get saved, give thanks, and do good. But God's will is also that you abstain from sexual immorality that Paul has pointed out here. We'll, we'll look into why this is important to us walking in a manner worthy of our God as we go on. But first I want to look at that second phrase, your sanctification this is the will of God your sanctification what is sanctification and what does it mean it means to be set apart an integral part of God's will for our lives is that we are set apart God wants us set apart from a godless culture and its sexual immorality if our sexual behavior is no different than the Gentiles who do not know God as we read there then we are not sanctified we're not set apart in the way that God wants us to be not only in our sexual behavior as we'll look at, but in the way we think and the way we talk and the way we act. Paul is going to address those later on in the last section that we'll get to. We're called, you and I, to be set apart. Set apart to a, a greater purpose. And it shouldn't be hard because, you know, this world is not our home. I don't know if you realize that, but this world is not our home. Paul, uh, Peter makes this plainly clear in his letter in 1 Peter 2, 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or wanderers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's so much that this world believes in that is important, but it just really is not important. It's not our values. It's not God's values and heavenly values. It's not our home. This place is not our home and God has called us into his own kingdom and to his glory. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now the third phrase there in verse 3 was vitally important to Paul to bring up and it's vitally important for us today in the midst of his praise there for their progress in walking with God and pleasing God. He gives them a solemn warning about a topic that can derail their Christian walk very quickly. Of course, the subject of sexual immorality is very important in our day and age as well. So let us define our terms before we move on so that we are all clear on what Paul is talking about. And this Greek word used here for sexual immorality is porneia. And this is where we get our word pornography from. And this word is also translated in many of your Bibles. It's also translated as fornication. So this Greek word porneia is a broad word referring to any sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. Hebrews 13.4 makes it clear where sex between a man and a woman should take place, and that is in marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's what God's designed from the beginning. When Jesus said in Matthew 19.5, Therefore... 
a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The beauty, the beauty of God's design for two people who come together as husband and wife. And if there's anybody that should be having sex in this world, it should be Christian married couples. Not just for the purpose, of course, of procreation, but to find pleasure in one another. That's God's beautiful design, God's will for us that are married. But Satan's, of course, his not-so-subtle strategy is often to do all that he can to encourage marriage outside, um, encourage sex outside of marriage, and to discourage sex in marriage. And this is why this topic is so important for us today. It was important enough for Paul to bring it up with the Thessalonians. It's important for us to wrestle with this topic here today. And this was one of Paul's very first letters that he ever wrote. And the sub subject of sexual immorality would permeate through many of his later epistles as he saw the destruction of sexual immorality waged upon the churches that he was ministering and visiting. He was also writing here this very letter, this very letter of Thess uh, 1 Thessalonians. He was writing from Corinth where the temple of the goddess, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, you know, the goddess of sex and beauty, it cast its shadow across the city. Every night the servants of Aphrodite would go out as prostitutes throughout the city and people would sleep with them as worship to the Greek goddess. Corinth was famous for its sexual laxity and its promiscuity. And this Roman, the Roman world here, there's a quote that's, that's attributed to the Roman world and this time period by Professor, uh, Professor Bruce. And he said, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine while casual gratification was readily available from a prostitute. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. This was the prevailing thought and ethic across most of the Roman Empire and, and during the time that Paul was writing and, and during the time that these Christians were living. The church, the church itself in Corinth, of course, was not immune to these influences and worldviews either. If you have read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, you know that sexual sin and their confusion surrounding the topic was a major theme in his letters to them. Paul knew the destruction of sexual immorality, you know, as it rained down on that church, how it made their witness come to nothing, and it had brought their walk with God to a standstill. The city of Thessalonica was not any better culturally either, worshiping deities called the Kabari, and as one commentator put it, gross immorality was promoted under the name of religion. Paul knew the severity of the subject, and I don't want it to be lost on us today either. Nothing can derail your walk with God faster than sexual sin, not only wreaking havoc in your life, but also those that are close to you. The sin destroys lives, it destroys families, it destroys friendship, it destroys ministries, and it severely weakens the witness of the church in this world. It's no wonder that Satan has made sex in, has made sex and all its various tangents a main talking point of our society today, distorting the beauty of all that God designed and creating a facade that lures people in to what becomes the source of their shame and their destruction. Paul goes on there in verse 4, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
You know, it's with great sadness we should read that phrase, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know, sadly, the sin of sexual immorality is an epidemic in our churches nationwide. Adultery, fornication, divorce, pornography. The sanctification of the church is not happening the way it should be, the way God designed. The church is starting to look so much like the world. I wanted to share some statistics from a a recent poll, 2016, a Barna research poll on the topic of pornography relating to Christians and non-Christians. A Barna research poll, a Barna research, they they are one of the most trusted Christian um, research centers for various things, but they did a a poll on this, and uh, there'll be many of them up on the screen. I'm not going to go over them just for the sake of time, but just point out a few of them. One is 11 is the average age that the child is first exposed to porn. 11 is the average age. If some of you think what you were doing at the age of 11, I didn't even know what a girl was at the age of 11. 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. And just, you know, as a side note to parents, keep fighting the good fight with your kids. Whatever it is you're doing, whatever safeguards you need to put in place, keep doing those. Don't worry about people calling you prudish looking at you sideways because you're protecting your kids too much. You're protecting them from a lie. You're protecting them from destruction in their lives. And just keep doing that. Whatever it takes, keep doing that. 56% of American divorces involve one party, party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. That's a scary statistic. Last one, 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. You know, that's pretty scary as we think about those statistics. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, said in Ephesians 5, 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, in his, as, in pro, as is proper among saints. It just seems from these statistics that we are so far from that verse, from, from what Paul is asking there. We're seeing the consequences of that happening in our church. Not even named among you, Paul wrote there. I think the problem many times is that we don't name it but we deal with it in secret and the effects of it many times just explode out of control. I know many of you have heard over the years of of pastors who fell into sexual sin. There have been so many high-profile cases over the years and I know being in myself, being in full-time ministry for so long, I've I've heard of many and I've witnessed many many people unfortunately falling and having to, to give up the ministry and have to go home from the mission field. You know, and that is the problem with sexual sin and lust. We, we can only keep it hidden for so long. It will wreak destruction in our lives if we don't bring it to God and repent and seek accountability. When Nick and I met with a financial lender to try and secure a loan for a future church property, you know, one of the reasons the financial advisor gave us for banks not wanting to lend to churches is because they're afraid that the pastor will run off with the secretary and the church will self-destruct. You know, what kind of witness... Is that for a church in our day and age? Paul's seriousness on the subject could only have been received from Jesus who said in Matthew 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
But if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We need to guard the purity of our hearts as we seek to please God. I was struck by the idea there in verse 5 that the Gentiles did not know better because they did not know God. They did not know God. You know, in the garden, the serpent tempted Eve by saying, did God really say that? Challenge God's word. Challenge God's word. And our knowledge of God is being challenged. God's word is being challenged. Do we know God? Are we reading his word? Spending time with him. You know, one of the consequences of sexual sin, especially pornography, is that we feel shame. And that shame keeps us from going to God. And when we don't go to God, we don't understand his heart his father's heart, and our knowledge of him becomes distorted, and thus the destructive cycle continues. And I don't want this Bible study to devolve into a list, you know, of what not to do, but the warning from Paul is clear to us, and we need to know it and understand it because the consequences for you and I and for our families and our children are great. Paul says as much there in verse 6, he says, The Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul had already spoken to them about this, solemnly warned them about this topic, and they still had questions about it. Verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Brothers and sisters, we have been set apart. This is your sanctification. We've been set apart to greater things. I love what Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, pursue faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Yes, we're called to put things off. We're called to put off the deeds of the flesh, the things of the flesh. But the joy is, we get, is what we get to put on. God's not saying you got to do all this and no, this is a bummer life. You just, all this, this list of things I don't want you doing. No, there's a joy what we get to put on. We get to pursue righteousness. We're called to pursue faith, called to pursue love, called to pursue peace. Paul has commended the Thessalonians there in chapter 1. I talked about it already. On their work of faith, they pursued faith. He commended them on their labor of love. They pursued love. He commended them on their steadfastness of hope in Jesus. They, they, they had pursued hope in Jesus. They were pursuing God, seeking to please him in the purity of heart, cultivating that relationship with their Father in heaven. I know this is a heavy topic today, but there's a lot at stake for our spiritual lives and for our, for our friendships, for our marriages, and for our families. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You and I cannot be naive and ignorant in these things. To go against the flow of lies that Satan is feeding this world, we need to grow in our knowledge of God and cultivate that relationship with him in our private prayer closet and in community with one another. We cannot do these kind of things without each other, and that's why we're here and why we have community groups and gather together to pray for one another, help each other through those struggles in life. But before we move on to our last point, I just wanted to point out verse 8. Therefore, in verse 8, it says, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, you might not agree with me, and I'm saying, you might not agree with me, but I'm not the one who's saying this. 
You're not blowing me off, but you're blowing God off, Paul says. That word disregard, disregards can be translated in another way, which I personally prefer. Therefore, whoever despises this despises God. I, I don't think the word disregards carries the emotional intensity that the this, that this subject matter you know, that, that Paul is conveying with this subject matter this morning. If I dis- disregard your advice, that's one thing. But if I despise your advice, you know, that kind of conveys another level of intensity, another intensity of meaning. So some of your Bibles use the word disregard. Some of them use rejects. Some of them use despises. I, I like the word despises. Therefore, whoever despises this despises not man, but God. This is an important subject, my friends. And as we move on to our third point, purity of character, Paul finishes this this section here in verses 9 through 12 as he explores the idea of purity of character. Along with purity of motive and purity of heart, we need to have purity of character. Being a set apart in this world can mean being faithful in the mundane tasks in, in life where no one is watching. We read there in verse 9 through 12, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, Paul is speaking from this place of praise and encouragement. You guys are doing well. Keep moving forward. Keep loving. Keep doing what you're doing. Abound and bound more, but continue to grow, to go against the flow. And he points out three ways there that, that, that they can continue to grow and in many ways go against the flow of society. The first being to aspire to live quietly, or you, you could say have the ambition to live or lead a quiet life. I think you could say that, safely say that a lot of people are living lives of anxiety, we're bombarded with it every day with various forms of media that tell us what we're missing in our lives or tell us who's out to get us, you know. That's all advertising is, really, is me telling you that your life is not complete unless you buy the product that I'm trying to sell you. And it's so easy to be overcome with this noise and miss out on the quiet fellowship with God and knowledge, and knowledge that he is working things out for you. He will provide for you. Maybe not according to the expectations of the world, but he will provide for you. He will care for you. And when we worship together here on Sunday mornings, you know, this is a great time to focus on someone that is greater than your issues and anxieties and find rest in his promises. I know we're all tired. Life is tiresome. If you your family going back to school these past weeks, you're tired. You know, it was a lot of work doing all that shopping and and uh, getting ready, if you had many kids, you know, even harder. But Jesus says, come, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I love that verse. And that's one of the verses for Sunday mornings. Come, Jesus says, come here, you who are, are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And one of the greatest parts of climbing these 14ers is when you're up there above tree line and you sit down to rest, it's so quiet so quiet i love it it's so peaceful i love it you might need to be intentional in finding that quiet time with god let the noise of the world fade away and meditate on his love for you secondly paul also encourages them to mind 
their own affairs or mind their own business. Wow, that's not a prophetic word to us today. Everyone is up in everybody's business today, these days. You know, internet trolls, political bickering, gossip, whatever it is. We, we really need to take to heart Paul's message here. We need the daily grace of God to deal with our own lives, let alone comment on the affairs of others. And I know we're not all guilty of this, but it's in the text and throw it out there and as the saying goes if the shoe fits wear it you know but I'm sure we're all guilty on some level of not minding our own business you know the Greek the Greeks of Paul's day used to love it, sit around and just talk about nothing you know whatever new thing came in they would sit and discuss it with no goal no solutions they just wanted to hear the new news you know and I love how one commentator put it there is a great difference between the Christian duty of putting the interests of others first and the busybody's compulsive itch to put other people right. Then Paul encourages them, thirdly, to work with their hands. And I love this quote from David Gusick. He says, manual labor was despised by ancient Greek culture. They thought that the better a man was, the less he should work. In contrast, God gave us a carpenter king. He gave us fishermen, apostles, and tent-making missionaries. Paul would also, later on, he would write to the Thessalonians. There were some there that they, they thought that, you know, Jesus was going to return like the next day. And they're like, well, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to pay off my credit card, my debt or anything. I'm just stop working. And Paul's like, if you don't work, you don't eat. And we'll get to that section as we continue through our lessons. But Paul's exhortation was here to work. This contrast of lifestyle would set these Christians apart and model a different way to the world that they lived in. They would not give any cause for people to speak against God and, and doing so would be a powerful witness for the gospel to all they came in contact with. And we know now 2,000 years later that the churches in these times, that they, they accomplished this goal as Christianity spread throughout the region as they modeled these things that Paul was talking about. And people bore witness not only in speech but in conduct. Now as we close this morning, I wanted, to, I wanted to close with this, this as we just kind of bring it, bring it around with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. If you want to turn your Bibles there, I wanted to close with this and uh, close our time this morning. And if you're there, he starts out there in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your members, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm not going to expound on this text because we just don't have time this morning, but maybe you, you want to think and meditate on it this week. But I think the context, of course, of, you know, of what we've been talking about is pretty self-explanatory. But I want to draw your attention to verses 19 and 20, and specifically verse 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, for you were bought with a price. 
Salvation is a free gift to all who repent and believe on the name of Jesus. By grace, you and I are saved. Yes, it is free. It costs us nothing. But as the old adage goes, nothing in this world is free. Someone paid that price, and it was Jesus. As the hymn tells us, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You and I were bought with a price, who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we do not want to be guilty of despising his sacrifice by not heeding Paul's warnings to us this morning in this, in this chapter. As we saw from the statistics this morning, it would not be a far reach to say that there's many of us struggling here with sexual sin, and, it's, and we need to do business with God this morning and confess that before him. And so as we sing this last song this morning, I think if that's you this morning, you need to do that. You need to go before the Lord and confess that to him. Don't waste any time. This is Paul, if you can see his language, you read the chapter with me. You understand the severity of this. The stakes are too high for us not to, to give it to God right now and confess our sin to him. If you need to find accountability with another brother or sister to help you through it, then you need to do that. I encourage you to do that. So as we, we're going to sing this morning, just take time to, to go before the Lord. And, and maybe if you just to pray for your families. Maybe just pray God's protection against these things, you know, as we sing this song. So let us pray. Lord, Lord, we just thank you for this time. And Lord, your word, I thank you, Lord. It gives us everything that we need to live this life and doesn't gloss over those things that are important and warn us, Lord, that our enemy is out to devour us. He does not want us to succeed. He does not. He wants to destroy us, our friendships, our families at every turn. And Lord, I just pray that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you. And, and if there's some here today, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would just speak to them and give them release if they're in bondage to sexual sin in their lives, that you would set them free, Lord. Set them free by the power of blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf Lord you paid the price you paid it all and Lord we love you we thank you for that in Jesus name you've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado for more information and audio content visit us at whitefieldschurch.com